Hard work is important, but it's not enough. We still need to be able to tell our story. On this episode, how to get noticed without selling out. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 480. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Our hard work should speak for itself, shouldn't it? Ah, If only it was that easy. Uh, Really, though, we need to be able to not only work hard, not only to do the diligent, responsible work that so many of us in our listening community do every day throughout our careers, but also to be able to position ourselves well so that we can rise up. Today's guest is really an expert at helping leaders to do this well. I'm so glad to welcome to the show Laura Huang. She is an associate professor at the Harvard Business School. Laura's research examines interpersonal relationship and implicit bias in entrepreneurship and in the workplace. She is the creator of Find Your Edge, an initiative dedicated to addressing inequality and disadvantage through personal empowerment. Her award-winning research has been featured in the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Forbes, and many others. And she's also been named as one of the 40 best business school professors under the age of 40 by Poets and Quants. She's the author of the new book, Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage. Laura, I'm so glad to welcome you to the show. Thanks, Dave. Such a pleasure. So I was discovering in my research about you that you and I share something in common that we were both super shy as kids. <laughs> and and we've both we've both moved past that a little bit at least. I was thinking about that in the context of constraints because in the business world especially, especially in North American business culture, being shy, being quieter, I think is considered to be a constraint by most of us. And yet I was thinking about your work and that there's a value in constraints. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about that. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny because look at you now hosting a podcast and all the things that you do in this sort of shyness, right? It absolutely was. It felt like more than a constraint when I was younger. I mean, I was painfully shy and I didn't have a lot of friends and I wasn't really good at a lot of the things that a lot of the other kids were good at. And But in some ways, it also allowed me to do things like observe and understand and make sense of things. It gave me a sort of empathy and a way in which to sort of see the world that I think really did turn out to be an asset later on. And, you know, it's just a small example of one type of constraint, but there are constraints everywhere we are. I mean, there are constraints in terms of the teams that we work in, in terms of the products that we have to sell, in terms of the way in which we go about things in the workplace. There's just constraints everywhere. And what we tend to think about constraints as is obstacles, things that hold us back, things that don't allow us to do other things. Right. But instead, constraints actually provide us with lots of opportunities that we don't even necessarily see. And what happens is that that constraint not only provides those opportunities, but it gives us a different type of opportunity so that when we actually do see and act upon those opportunities, it even can give us an advantage. So, you know, I'll talk just about like a really quick example that talks about like what constraints lead to is, you know, in some of my, in some of my work, I look a lot at 
innovation and how companies can be can be nimble and innovative and grow. And so what a lot of large corporations have done recently is doing things like these corporate incubators, incubators that allow them to come up with new technologies and new innovations from within. And the thought is that these will help new ideas flourish because you've got people around, you've got the resources, you've got the funding, you've got the closeness with the core, the core business. And a lot of companies did this because they found that they were sort of buying companies and technologies outside of their own organizations. Instead, what they sort of found was that these corporate incubators were not producing the types of innovations that they actually wanted and that they still had to go out and sort of pick these entrepreneurial startups and these technologies outside because there's something around the constraint around not being inside and not having the resources and the funding and the know-how and the people that was actually allowing them to be more innovative. So this is sort of one example of, of how constraints work on a, on a more macro level scale beyond the, the individual constraints that we experience. I've loved diving into your work and really thinking about how some of the things that we traditionally think of as um, good advice or or obstacles, in some ways we can turn them around and really make them work toward us. And I'm thinking about some of the situations that people come to you for advice on and me for advice on is high value meetings and interactions or going in for an interview or going in to hopefully land that key customer. And the advice is be yourself. And one of the things you point out in your work is that that's not necessarily the best advice, is it? Yeah, I mean, a lot of what my work is sort of that that I've sort of touched on is really this 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 aspect of like we realize that some people naturally have an advantage. And so what we all try to do is we try and work really hard to sort of create our own niche, try and create our own advantages, create our own sort of place for ourselves. And you know, I think it goes back to and it speaks a lot to what all of us have been really taught from a really young age. We've been we've been taught that in order to be successful, in order to land that job, in order to get that promotion, in order to get that funding for your startup, that you put in the hard work, that put in that hard work and then the outcomes will 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 result. That success is 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 a result of that hard work. And we nowadays have such a love affair with things like hard work and effort and grit. Like we talk about how like grit and hard work, like those are the elements, those are the qualities that really will allow you to be successful. But I think deep down and in the back of all of our minds, we come to this realization at some point that even though hard work is critical, that hard work alone is not enough, that we kind of start hitting the same walls over and over and over again. And that when we put in that hard work, it sometimes leaves us frustrated because we see other people who maybe didn't put in as much of that hard work or maybe put in the same amount as us, but inevitably were a lot more successful and, st- and saw a lot more of those outcomes coming to them. And so it's this sort of this understanding that we have that the world isn't exactly meritocratic, that there's this myth of meritocracy. And so when people struggle or when they have or when they're not seeing those outcomes, we don't exactly know what to say to them. And so we see a lot of these messages around 
be gritty, put in the hard work, just be yourself and people will see it. People will see the value that you provide. And that's sort of where I, I pause and I say, you know, that's actually really bad advice. The advice to be yourself is horrible advice and not for the reasons that we might be thinking. It's not because of this impression management and that, that sort of thing, but there are so many different versions of ourselves, right? Be yourself. It's really be yourselves. There's so many different iterations of us and we've evolved over time. You know, the painfully shy Dave, who you were as a child is no longer who you are now, but yet it's still a part of who that self is. And so I I sometimes liken it to, you know, thinking about each of us as a diamond, right? If you think of each individual person as a solitary diamond, And in every diamond, there are flaws. There are parts of the diamond that are flawed, but yet there are parts of the diamond that shine and there are different facets and cuts and different ways that it's been, it's been put together. And each of us is that we all have as part of us, some parts that shine really brightly and some parts that are flawed. And when we're going and we're interacting with someone else, what we're really trying to do is show them the side of our diamond that is going to shine the brightest. Because that's when we're going to have the deepest, richest sort of conversation where we're really going to understand who that other person is. And so just like a diamond will shine differently in different environmental conditions, in different lighting, in different rooms, so too we we will do the same. And so we're just trying to figure out what side of our diamond is going to shine the brightest when we're in a room. And that's we're still the same diamond. We're still that same person. We're still that same self, but there's lots of different facets to our diamond. And that's what we need to sort of remember. The second part of that is, you know, sometimes when I'm, again, going back to this sort of managing impressions piece of it, especially when when we think about how success doesn't always go to, or it's not distributed equally, or it doesn't go to the people who put in the hardest work. You know, sometimes I sort of get the question, you know, this feels, it just feels inauthentic. It feels like, you know, I'm being manipulative or strategic because, you know, we've all experienced that. Yeah, we've all experienced that, that scenario where, We've seen someone kissing up to the boss or something, and it, it makes us sort of feel like gross. Like we don't want to be that person. Uh, we don't want to be that person kissing up to the boss. But yeah. in, but but in fact, this is not strategic at all. This is you're really showing people who you authentically are, and when you do that, that allows you to really have that deeper, richer connection with someone else, rather than having a connection based on what their first impressions are of you or letting them sort of see you how they want to see you. You're really showing them who you authentically are and the value, the real true value that you do provide. I I love this analogy of thinking about ourselves as diamonds and all of the imperfections and beauty that come along with a diamond, right? As as we all are as people. And I'm, I'm thinking back to many of the interactions I've had over the years with clients and um, and teaching public speaking courses for many years. And inevitably, I would hear exactly what you just said of someone, we would be practicing a skill. We'd get in front of a room and help people to be louder, project their voice better, make eye contact, the kinds of things that are you know very fundamental public speaking skills. And someone would say, inevitably, I can do it, physically do it, but it's not me. Mm-hmm. It's not who I am. And as I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about like the diamond and the 
skill of getting better at showing different parts of our of the diamond, right? I was thinking there there are times where it's the I'm not really authentic, you know, I'm this is not who I am. And it also seemed to me that there were a lot of times where it was I'm just not comfortable with this yet. I haven't done this mm-hmm. before. I haven't shown this side of the diamond in a corporate setting or with a customer. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm going to screw up and I'm not going to it's not going to feel right when I don't do it perfectly the first few times. Do you see that when you see folks trying to for, for the first time or two maybe start to shift the diamond a little bit in different kinds of scenarios? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, there's absolutely going to be sort of this personal type of experimentation to see what works and what doesn't work. But I'll give you a quick example of something that sort of illustrates, you know, something that just doesn't work and and trying to push it or versus something that's much more authentic and feels more like yourself. In my, my first faculty position, which was not at Harvard, but was at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, on my, my first week, I had a colleague of mine who basically said, you know, it's really important that you network. It's really important that you get to know lots of the senior faculty and the associate deans. And, and we sort of, lots of us get this, know this, like we've been told, like, it's important to network. You should go out and network and meet people and know lots of people in the organization. Yeah. Um, get so, so we hear this a lot. And that was similar to the type of advice that I was getting. And this colleague of mine had great intentions. And he sort of said, you know, so you want to be able to make sure that you network and get to know people. And I said, well, I, how do I do that? And he said, well, you know, you just do what I do. Like you go and you grab drinks with them. You go out to dinner with them. You like, you don't need to have an agenda. You're just trying to get to know them. Just, you know, ask them if they want to go to dinner or drinks or something. And so here I am, this, this young, fresh out of, you know, brand new faculty woman who is trying to, you know, network with people. And I knew enough to sort of know, like, I shouldn't, perhaps be asking people to go grab drinks and dinner. But instead I was sort of like, okay, well, let's, what do we, why don't we grab lunch together? And so I've reached out to a couple of, of, of these senior faculty members and associate deans and was like, oh, can we grab lunch? Can I get on your calendar and we'll have a lunch meeting? And so I, had my first lunch meeting with this associate dean. And I'll never forget, we're sitting there. And it took a while, took a couple of weeks to get on his calendar. But we're sitting there and he sort of looks at me and he said, okay, so what's the agenda? (laughs) I was like, (laughs) wait, what? I was like, oh, well, you know, I just wanted to get to know you. There's no agenda because that's what this, this other colleague of mine had said. Like, you don't need to have an agenda. Just go and get to know them. And so I sort of said, Oh, there's no agenda. And I remember sort of the, the associate dean looking at me stunned for a second. And I recognized in that moment, like, here's someone whose time is really valuable. Like, if I asked for a meeting, his assumption is that I had something important that I wanted to talk about, that I had some sort of agenda, that I wanted to talk about, you know, the future of the university or the annual fund or like the state of teaching in the world or something that was like worthy of, of his sort of time. And predictably, that lunch went terribly. And so for the next couple of weeks after that, I was sort of like, oh, no, like would avoid this person in the hall, like trying not to (laughs) see this person. And then I had this conference that I was giving a presentation at, and it was a conference in a different city. And I was taking a flight to this conference, and I realized that this associate dean was on the same flight. 
And at the end of the flight, he sort of saw me and he sort of waved and we're getting off the flight and he said, oh, hey, how are, are you going to this same conference? And it turns out we're going to the same conference hotel. And he said, so how are you getting there? And I said, oh, well, I'm probably going to just grab a taxi or something. And he said, oh, well, I have my private car waiting do you want to just catch a ride with me? And I said, oh, well, I have my private car waiting as well. It's just a <laughs> private taxi car. And so he said, sort of, come join me. And so we took this 45-minute ride from the airport to the conference hotel. And there was no agenda that was needed. It was he bumped into me. I bumped into him. We are going to the same place. And in that car ride, we were able to get to know each other. We were able to sort of talk without an agenda. He asked me about how things were going and we talked about our values and we talked about things that he was working on and I was working on. And we really, we, we developed this really strong rapport. And to this day, he's one of the people that I will pick up the phone and call if there's something that I need advice on or if there's something that comes to mind that, you know, he's, he's become one of those a very strong mentor and supporter of mine. And what I sort of realized was that different people have to do things in different ways and what feels natural to you. It has never felt natural to me to be in these sort of networking events and approaching people and doing things in that sort of way. But that is also a part of recognizing who you are and your own ability to to sort of figure out what works for you. But underlying that is honing your ability to see the perceptions that others have of you, right? Knowing that, hey, recognizing that in this moment, the perception is that if I were to have scheduled this meeting, that I had something really important to say and that I really wanted his time for a reason and sort of guiding that. Whereas other colleagues of mine, the perceptions that I might have of them is like, hey, let's just hang out and grab drinks and or grab dinner and sort of get to know each other. That's very different. And so a lot of my work and what I talk about in the book is about how to hone that ability, hone that ability to see how others are perceiving you so that you can see how it affects you and how you can flip those things in your favor. It's such an amazing example of the same person and yet a very different outcome based on context. Having had that experience, how do you now approach new relationships, new conversations, new ways for people to be thinking about you, especially in a first or second interaction, differently than you did before? Yeah, I mean, part of that was that in that particular situation, it was something that was very serendipitous that happened, that we happened to be on the same flight. It was this man that I had had this disastrous first first meeting with. But part of this, when I talk about honing your ability to understand perceptions and the attributions that others are making of you, it's also honing your ability to see these sort of opportunities and acting upon these opportunities to really delight other people. Because so much of it is about your ability to show them some aspect of you that they haven't yet seen or being able to surprise them in some sort of counterintuitive way. And you need to be on the lookout for these sort of opportunities. That's part of where that authenticity comes from. It's also when you don't get those opportunities and you need to make those opportunities, how are you making those opportunities in a way that are is also true to yourself? So making those opportunities sometimes might mean things like, for me, knowing that I can't just 
ask somebody to a, a senior colleague of mine to lunch or dinner or drinks. But I know that when I have these opportunities to interact with them, that they then are able to just in interacting with me in a more organic way, that's when they see the value that I provide. And that's how they see where I enrich. And that's where they see sort of my sense of humor and and my straightforwardness and things where it doesn't feel forced. And so when I don't have those sort of opportunities, like randomly bumping into someone on a flight, what I'll do is like, I'll join a committee, for example, where they might be asking for volunteers for a committee that's going to help on a certain topic. And if there's somebody who's running that committee that I know that I would never have an organic way of getting to know, I'll maybe join that committee. And through the interactions of being on that committee together, they'll sort of get to know me and they'll see the opinions that I put forth and they'll sort of see that I've got good ideas on certain in certain areas. Or for example, I might go to some uh, senior colleague when they when I see a article that they've published and say, hey, you know what I noticed from your article is this and that and sort of starting and sparking opportunities on my own that are much more organic and much more, you know, feel much more authentic and closer to who I am. There's a lot of ways to do this. And part of it is finding what works for you and what connects with you and I'm I'm really conscious also of the invitation that you make to people, which is the importance of guiding others. In fact, there's a whole section of the book on guiding. And I was really fascinated to, as I was reading, one of the chapter headings in that section is self-awareness encumbers our ability to guide. And I, I read it twice. I was like, wait, did I read that right? <laughs> And because we've we've heard the story so many times, we've done episodes on the importance of self-awareness, getting to know yourself. Yeah. And yet you say that could actually hold us back. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So part of this is this aspect of being also improvisational. When I talked about sort of seeing and acting upon opportunities, a lot of that comes when you are slightly more fluid and more improvisational in how you are approaching different situations. A lot of times we go into situations and we are over-prepared. Being prepared is something that, again, like we tend to think like preparation is great, but being over-prepared is something that happens a lot of times. So for example, take for instance that you're going into a meeting and you know that you need to convince someone of some direction that you want to go in, but you know that the odds are stacked against you because they have a completely different view. So both of you are not aligned. You're seeing in very different directions and your, your job is to sort of convince them of your, of your way. We have these sort of situations a lot where the odds are stacked against us. We need to try and persuade someone or we need to convince someone. And what we often do is we then sort of put down here are like here are six different reasons why I am right and that person is wrong or here are six reasons why this is a really compelling strategy or six things that or eight things or whatever the number of bullet points is we come up with these sort of things and then we assume where we think we're going to go in there and we're going to give them all of our best points and that's going to change their mind they're going to see all of the validity behind what it is I'm saying and they're going to be like yep this is the way you're right but that's just not what happens because other people are sort of on the defensive as well. And so when we go in strongly presenting all of those those five points or six points or whatever it is, the other person already has rebuttals for all of those sort of things. Instead, what we want to do is not come on 
quite as strongly instead of like sort of advocating and sort of pushing each of those things it's almost better to be less prepared to vaguely have an idea of the sort of things that you want to say but to be listening and then finding your entree to how you're going to guide that person into seeing the validity validity of your argument. So going in with more of an inquiry mindset, inquiry rather than advocacy is something that I talk a lot about with my students. And what does it mean to go in with an inquiry mindset instead of an advocacy mindset? And that means sort of saying things like, you know, help me understand why we've been doing it this way or help me understand how our strategy has evolved in this way or help me understand so that you now can listen and then when they say something that sort of spurs something for you that you dynamically and fluidly can kind of tangentially be weaving in all of the arguments that you've kind of thought about and that lack of over preparedness allows you to really guide in a different way because the the guiding piece is so instrumental to gaining an edge this book is really about how do you create and find and gain your own edge. And at the crux of this is your ability to sort of redirect and guide the perceptions of others. And you're going to do this when you do understand you have this awareness. You have awareness of yourself and the points that you want to make. But that you're really trying to flip these things in your favor that in an authentic way that you're able to flip these stereotypes and obstacles in your favor. And that's how you find and create your own edge. And I'll give you sort of one kind of concrete example to solidify it a little bit, because mm, this is please. sort of, I think it sounds a little bit abstract when I'm talking about how, how do you actually flip circumstances to create your own edge? So let's talk about like maybe I start with sort of a stereotype for example because I do a lot around how we face obstacles and we face adversity because of the stereotypes that others may have of us so for example let's say that you're an older employee and ageism is sort of a real thing and so you may be going into an interview situation you're interviewing for a job and you know that the odds are stacked against you because you're older and you feel like this company wants to hire people who are younger and fresher whatever the case might be and so the lay view is that people who are older employees or older candidates are you know, you ask people and they're like, oh, well, they're not as good at technology or they're not as technologically proficient. Those are sort of stereotypes that we have about older employees. And so in some of my studies, what I found is that based on all of these stereotypes, there are underlying assumptions that we have. And for older employees, there is one underlying perception that sort of dominates all others and drives all of these other subsequent perceptions. And that is curiosity, that we think that older employees are not as curious. Huh. And so what I've done is I tell these older candidates before they go into job interviews, for example, and I've tested this in a variety of different studies, I'll say to them, the one perception, the perception that they have about you is that you're not curious. And I'll just sort of leave it at that. I'll say they, they believe that you're not a curious person. And then these people will go into interviews and I'll hear them saying things like, I'm curious about your strategy and how you've come to this and how you've kind of dealt with competitors in terms of this strategy. Or I'm curious about your vision and, and how your vision has evolved over time. Or tell me about, you know, how you've weathered the storm. And they'll ask all these questions that tap into <laughs> curiosity. Yeah. And what I find is that 
at the end of these interviews, not only are they rated higher in terms of curiosity, but they're also rated higher in terms of things like technological proficiency and ability to work in teams and willingness to learn and all of these other things that might have been negative stereotypes about older candidates or older employees. And not only that, they're just as likely, if not more likely, to get the job. Huh. Than, other, than their counterparts who are not older candidates. And so they're flipping those stereotypes in their favor. They're taking those underlying perceptions and relying on their strengths, but also turning their underestimated strengths or weaknesses upside down so that they can succeed in business. And I've seen this in business and in life. And it comes right back to the diamond of walking that situation and I'm not changing who I am. Mm -hmm. I'm just shifting the focus of what light is shining on the diamond in this situation in order that it really represents me well, because I know it's likely, of course, we're painting a broad stereotype here, but it's likely that that's going to be more of an issue if I go into a situation as an older person. And so I can proactively begin to guide against that narrative so that you know, I'm providing evidence that really doesn't match up with that perceived stereotype. That's right. So the piece of this framework that really works is that you have honed your ability to see those perceptions and attributions that others are making about you so that you can then flip it in your favor. And so that's where I see them giving examples. Now, these are real examples, but then they get asked these questions like, oh, tell me about a time when you, you know, you know, the typical interview questions that we get. And they tell them about real circumstances and real examples of, you know, they do tell them about a time, for example, when they were, you know, trying to sell a deal or they were trying to sell a product or they were, you know, and but those are real examples. They're just really positioning those examples in terms of those underlying perceptions to demonstrate how curious they are. And this is something I find in my research that I talk about in the book as well in terms of how do you sort of determine what these perceptions are. And they, they're based on lots of different things. And, you know, there are the typical cast of characters, things, stereotypes that we have based on gender and race, ethnicity, class, religion, sexual orientation, age, those sort of things. But then there's also the individual ones where everyone has something right? It doesn't matter who you are. You know, I remember talking to Ronan Farrow, who is the Pulitzer Prize winning son of Mia Farrow. And he said, he's like, you know, look, people look at me and I look like I'm the epitome of privilege, right? White, cis male, you know, grew up in a, in a wealthy household. And he said, but, you know, I know that the perceptions, depending on where I am and what the room and, and who's in there, a lot of times the perceptions are things like you don't deserve your Pulitzer Prize. You don't, you're not a good writer. You're not, you know, all of this sorts of things. And those are the types of perceptions that, that, that he has to sort of flip in his favor. We all have something. You write, you're not selling out when you reclaim an awareness of yourself. And I was really fascinated by the story of Ashley Edwards at MindWrite that you feature mm -hmm. in the book. And mm -hmm. I just think what she is doing and has done is brilliant and how she is guiding people well. Could you tell us a bit about some of the the strategy and tactics she uses in order to represent herself well in her organization. Yeah, I mean, Ashley is an incredible woman who who started this company called MindRight, and she grew up in Newark, New Jersey. She's a black woman, and she ended up going to some pretty prestigious institutions, including Stanford, Yale, and you know, she 
constantly felt like this sort of awareness and this authenticity that she was bouncing between two different worlds that on the one hand she could be talking about goddess braids but at the same time that she was sort of talking about Coachella and she sort of understood multiple different worlds and constantly sort of felt like she was selling out regardless of what world she was in, that if she was in one world, she was abandoning the other. And if she was in another world, she was sort of not sort of situated and doing what she could be in the other. Like there was always this sort of tension Uh and she really reclaimed this when she realized that that's sort of an asset that she does have that she's able to sort of do this switching between the two and that she didn't have to necessarily be apologetic about that. And so MindRight is a company where she has investors who are, you know, alumni of the institutions that she's gone to, that she's been, she's able to sort of talk to about advice and mentoring and funding and all these sorts of things. But it's a company that is for mental health and it is services for people like those that she grew up with in Newark, people where growing up she saw people around her that were subject to abuse, drug abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, all these sort of things that she really wanted to help in terms of how do we raise mental awareness, how do we provide services. And so she's sort of combining these two so that it really gives her this this advantage. It really gives her this edge. So I just, I tell that story as this beautiful example of how you can have this awareness of yourself and reclaim that without feeling like you're selling out to either party or any any sort of variety of number of parties. Yeah. And she just, I, I love the examples you give in the book of just, you know, when she's with the the Stanford crowd, like she's really able to step into that and and that part of the diamond is turned, right? That's true yeah. and authentic to her experience because she's lived that world. She's part of that community. And then when she's in the inner city, she's got a different part of the diamond that's showing that yeah. day and all the other stuff's still there, but the that people see the experiences that she's had there and she's speaking their language and she's talking to them. And I was just like, wow, what a brilliant example of guiding and, and being able to lead people to the assumptions that are going to serve us well, serve our organizations well, and ultimately to serve all our stakeholders. You know, it leads me to one of the other things you you write in the book is you say, if you don't provide your own chronicle of who you are, one will be given to you. Don't passively let others write your narrative, write your own narrative and guide others' view of you. Let your past make you better, not bitter. What a great message for folks. And yet, so much of the time, we let other people write the story for us, don't we? People are going to have an impression of us regardless of whether or not we guide them to who we authentically are or not. And so the whole piece of not letting people passively write your narrative, it's because you know how you enrich. And it's because you have in your power the ability to delight and guide. And so when you when you step up and you take that and you take you empower yourself with that, that's when you are actually able to sort of see these outcomes. But along those same lines is that final piece that you talked about, which is this bitterness and that betterness component, which in the last decade, as I've been working on this research, what I've realized is that a lot of it is based on bitterness and failure. And we all have that. We all have failures. We all have drawdowns. We all have bitterness and feelings of being jaded or wronged. And the thing about that is that there's so much data in 
that instance or recalling that? And why is it that we still feel bitter about it? Not just the the circumstance itself, but like thinking deeper around, would other people also have been bothered by this? Would they have been bothered by this in different ways? What is it about me? What is it about that person? What is it about that embarrassment I felt or that failure I felt? There's so much information there about your values and the values of that other person. And so I talk about how that's still going to bother us to some extent. We're still going to have scar tissue. But how does that scar tissue now protect us and allow us to make it make us better? So whenever we're feeling like that, asking ourselves, is this making us bitter or is this making us better? And how does that sort of allow us to continue in creating and gaining our own edge? I love your work because not only is it backed by so much wonderful research and examples, but you put so much of yourself into your work and your own journey too. So I hope folks will check out the book and also we'll have a link to your site on this week's weekly leadership guide. It's laurawong.net and there's a companion guide to the book there as well, which is a great resource for folks as they're diving in on this. Laura Huang is the author of Edge, Turning Adversity into Advantage. Laura, thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much. This conversation reminded me a bit of the quote from Charlie Parker, the jazz musician. You've got to learn your instrument, then you practice, practice, practice. And then when you finally get up there on the bandstand, forget all that and just wail. Thanks so much, Laura, for your wisdom. If this conversation was useful to you, I'd recommend three other episodes. One of them is episode 372, Leverage Your Defining Moments with Lynn Whiteford. Lynn and I talked about her career in that episode, including how she leveraged some of her defining moments to do some amazing things, including working for Kevin Costner, becoming a vice president at Disney later in her career. So many wonderful uh, stories in that conversation, many of them that relate to what you heard from Laura today. Episode 372 is where to go for that. I'd also recommend episode 448, The Value of Being Uncomfortable with Neil Pazrika. Neil and I talked about this Well, this just reality that if we're going to learn and develop, we're going to need to be uncomfortable once in a while. We're even going to find ourselves being embarrassed now and then. And that is actually a fairly good indicator that we have learned something different and hopefully we're getting better along the way. A lot of inspiration for that on episode 448. And then finally, I'd recommend a related topic today's conversation, executive presence. Uh, something that so many of us want to get better at, and no one knows that better than Nancy Duarte. She is probably the uh, one of the leading thinkers on how to design and give great presentations. In episode 450, she taught us about how to influence executives, not only how uh, she teaches clients to do that, how her own team does that effectively. I think you'll find a lot of practical advice, especially if you find yourself talking often to senior leaders, not only in your organization, but in other organizations. Episode 450 is a must-listen for you. All of those you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you have not yet set up your free membership, now is the time to do so because you're going to get access to the entire listening library, searchable by topics since 2011. And you'll be able to track down, in addition, all the related episodes, including episodes on executive presence, career growth, personal leadership, and many more. All of that's at coachingforleaders.com. When you set up your free membership, you'll get access to the entire library. In addition, the weekly leadership guide coming on Wednesdays, 
the book notes. I've highlighted uh, all of the things that I found of value in Laura's book. Those are posted inside the portal as well, along with almost every book of uh, authors that are on the show. Next week, I'm glad to welcome back David Burkus. He is going to be teaching us how great teams find purpose. He's got a new book out as well, and he is just a marvelous teacher on how we can do that more effectively. Join me next week for How Great Teams Find Purpose. See you on Monday. Take care, everyone.